Well, hello, everybody. It's Martin Heenan here on this week's Infection Control Matters. And it's sort of a bit of a follow-up from last week's one with Phil Russo and Charles Edmiston because I wasn't able to, unfortunately, take part in that because I was coughing like mad because I had a dose of COVID at the time. But when I was editing it, it took me back to some papers that I did with Charles a few years ago and Professor Judith Tanner from Nottingham. So I thought, oh, I wonder what Judith's been up to. And she's been up to something extremely relevant. So I thought, right, well, let's have a chat. So I'm delighted to say our guest today is Professor Judith Tanner, who's a professor of adult nursing at the University of Nottingham. She came from Leicester. She's worked in as a theatre background, worked at Imperial, I think, in London, uh, first degree up in Scotland sometime back in, well, a while ago, shall we say. So welcome, Judith. We're going to have a chat, aren't we? Oh, hi, Martin. It's absolutely great to see you. I've not seen you for a while, so um, lovely to catch up. Lovely. So this is a follow-on, really, from a piece of work we did years ago where we firstly did it, well, you led on a systematic review on colorectal surgery and bundles and found that they do work but as long as people do them, but the compliance was not great. So then we tried a bundle, you tried a bundle, didn't you? And... What was it? You had a one in five chance of actually getting the bundle? <laughs> I think it might have been worse than that, um, Martin. I think um, what was really interesting was um, we had our infection rates before. We did you know, really fantastic gold standard surveillance uh, of mm. wounds. And I think we had an infection rate in colorectal surgery of about 25%. And then we, um, we we did our study, remember, and we'd got lots of buy-in yep. from, you know, several companies and we had um, all the latest products and we we're following, you know, um, lots of interventions which had um, really good, robust evidence. And um, we did this intervention of the care bundle for, I think it was six months we did it. And we had, uh, we'd employed somebody who was working really hard to enforce the bundle um, and we were collecting fantastic data. And then at the end of the six months, we were, you know, really excited to say, right, what's our infection rate? You know, what is it now? What's it dropped by? And uh, it was 25%. No No change. And we couldn't understand it. So we then went back and we looked we looked at, well, what was the compliance with the bundle? And I think we had a total of nine interventions yeah. um, that each per- each patient was supposed to get. And I can't remember, you said it was one in five. I think it might have been even less than that, Martin. But mm-hmm. we were really shocked to see, despite this huge input that we'd, be, we'd been, you know, having to try and get the in, these interventions put in place, that it just, it, it wasn't happening. So... Mm. But following on from that study, one of the interventions that we looked at was preoperative warming. Yeah. And when we looked at some of the interventions individually and what their impact was, that was probably the one thing that really stood out as being something that made a difference. So we're interested in that. But also when when the study finished and we stopped... I was still getting calls from, you know, nurses on the ward saying, have you got any more of those warning um, pre-op warming gowns? Because we've got patients here who, you know, really, you know, want them. Then, So the ward staff were asking for them. The anaesthetists were saying, oh, you know, those warming gowns are really good um, because they found it really easy to get veins and to get cannulas into patients just because the patients oh, okay. were warm. I know it's just all these unexpected things you hadn't thought about. So that got me interested in them um, in looking at, inadvertent periop hypothermia and patient warming so that's why you know the next study kind of followed on from that yeah because warming is one of the things that actually had the 
biggest evidence base, didn't it? You know, it was a really good RCT published in the Lancet, I think, from um, uh, Melling and David Leeper. So they, you know, that's it, right, it was, a, lot, a long time, and that's yeah. a lot. I think it was two thousand and one. I mean, yeah, 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 and it came out with really robust evidence to show that pre-op warming did make a difference. And yet, I think we've been really slow to to do anything about pre-op warming. Mm. You know, you'd expect, um, you know, better buy-in from clinicians, but it doesn't, from my experience, it doesn't seem to be happening so much. Whether, I mean, I don't know why. (laughs) Mm. Well, I mean, I think your study starts to explain why, doesn't it? Because, you know, if you, could you tell us what this piece of work is? Because you've looked at this from three angles, haven't you? You, You've you've done some audit work to actually determine what the barriers are effectively. Yeah. So, as I said, following on from the previous study, really interested in looking at these, you know, pre-op warming gowns and other interventions to help with um, hypothermia in the operating theatre. But what I was really conscious was that it was about implementing interventions because at that time I run a master's course. This this is not a plug for my, you know, (laughs) for my university course. (laughs) I run a master's in quality improvement and we're doing some work as part of the master's program about looking at your local context, you know, what's happening in your own setting and mm. about, well, what is your real problem, defining what your real problem is and then implementing a solution. And I had switched hospitals at this time. And what I was thinking was, well, I know what would what would have worked at the hospital where we did that care bundle because I knew what some of the problems were there. But I was now associated with a different hospital and I didn't know what the problems were there. And it's with care bundles, especially, it's I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think you need to tailor your intervention to your local context. So with this with this warming thing, I thought, let's let's really find out what the problems were. I wasn't wanting to just rely on an audit data there. There hadn't really been a very robust audit carried out recently. So that wasn't really available. Often you look at things like root cause analysis, but Although we're really good at looking at root cause analysis, they're a bit one-dimensional and they don't always really capture the whole story. So what Mm. I thought we would do is before we go and implement some changes to try and get our patients all warm, because we're concerned about, you know, um, wound infections, and that's a risk factor being cold. We said, let's find out what the real problem is here at our hospital. So, yeah, so what we did was we did some patient follow-throughs. So we just did four and we just went on the day, checked to see which patients were, were happy to um, take part. And we followed them through, you know, from the admission unit. So when they came in in the morning to the admissions, the admissions ward through to, um, you know, the theatre reception, the anaesthetic room, the theatre. And then maybe some of them went to ITU or then they went to um, reco- or recovery and then they went to the post-op ward. So we followed patients through. So that was one thing. And then the second thing that we did was we did interviews. So when we did these patient journeys, we said, um, who are all the staff that our patients interact with? And there's a whole host of people, as you can imagine, professionals, but also people like porters who've got quite a big input on the patient journey. Um, Mm. So we found out who were all the um, staff groups associated and we did some interviews with the staff to say, you know, what are you thinking about patient warming and what are all these, you know, what interventions are we doing? And then the other thing that we did was we also said, right, well, let's look at the clinical data. So we went through all the patient's notes, um, you know, the electronic notes and got some data about, you know, where were their temperatures recorded and what interventions were made and were they hypothermic or were they not hypothermic? 
So we had three different ways of looking at each patient to find out, well, yeah, most patients to find out what was going on. And we got some really rich data, um, Mm. way better than um, as if we'd just, you know, done a straightforward audit. So that helped us really nail down what were the issues in our local content, what was happening in in our hospital that, you know, that we could address. I mean, the simple things like the duration of time people are on the journey it's like 13 to 15 hours, isn't it, from admissions yeah. lounge to arriving at the destination ward after recovery. It's a phenomenal amount that, of time. And that's right. And that came as a real shock. It came as a real shock to me. And I thought, well, maybe maybe that's just me. So we spoke, you know, the, we've got some clinicians on there. Was, there was a team of us. We had a, an anaesthetist, surgeon, but they were really quite surprised by that. We spoke to some other of, of their colleagues and they were all really surprised it took as long. And I thought... You know, in terms of patients getting cold, it's a long process for the patients. Um, my background is the operating theatre. And mm. you only see patients when they're, you know, in theatre. Maybe you think it's about three hours. You just think, oh, they, they were on the ward, three hours here and then back to the ward. No, yeah. we couldn't believe it was such a long time. And in terms of the patient experience, you know, that's not, that can't be good. I know. But I think that's exactly it, isn't it? Everybody sees their bit. You know, the porter thinks I'm only pushing them for five minutes. You know the the recovery teams only for the, but but there are delays in all of these areas. But I mean, it'd be fascinating to know how much you could compress that to if there wasn't all the waiting. Because without a doubt, there is some slack in there. But you know, so there's lots of different. Not only are there many different people, some of whom are not professionally trained and therefore probably wouldn't recognize yeah. their role in warming. But there also there's lots of different spaces that people pass through, yeah. and whose job it is to manage, say, something like warming in each space. Or the whole journey. That's why it's so complex. Yeah, and that was really interesting. And gosh, you know, silos, working in silos. Each space was a silo, you know, the admissions ward, the um, theatre reception, the anaesthetic room, the theatre. And each area had its own identity. And when you spoke to people, they said, oh, yeah, the admissions ward, that's cold. Um, you know, the, the anaesthetic room, that's cold. The recovery, that's warm. You know, and they, and they identified these areas but there was there was no sharing of equipment between it. So although it was about keeping the patients warm, like the warming gowns and the hot blankets, you were only allowed those in certain areas and you weren't allowed to share or you had to beg, steal and borrow, but you had to give it back in like two hours later. So these areas were really silo mentality. And the staff, most of the staff had this, I'm responsible for my bit, but my bit only. And then you had these free spaces, like you said, you know, the, the corridors and the lifts. And no one's taking responsibility for that. So nothing happened to the patient during those kind of times. So th- that that was really interesting about the responsibility and, and the silo mentality. You could almost see that some of those areas were really good at doing some interventions to do with warming and some areas where, weren't. So, for example, in the recovery unit, the nurses were really good and most of the patients got warming blanket supplies. Whereas that didn't happen on, you know, the wards or the admissions ward, you know, it was, it was, yeah, you could kind of rate each area for how, how well they did on, you know, the patient warming scale. Mm. I'm a wonder if they're thinking, I've got to do something about this in my particular area or this is just not seeing part of the patient pathway and that will be dealt with further on and do people think of you know perioperative warming is really just intraoperative warming during the case because you know they were using them in you know if you were really cold in theater you got warm didn't you although in recovery if you were hypothermic you didn't get warmed 
Yeah, it was less so, <laughs> which was interesting. The, the recovery nurses were brilliant at taking the patient's temperature. I think they were the highest, you know, or in the, mm. in the operating theatre itself was good. But and um, the recovery nurses, that for them was routine. You, you always take the patient's temperature, but they didn't have the access to the resources so much. The post-op wards, they were really good. I think it's maybe they have like a, a list, a checklist when you get back and it's part of the checklist is take the patient's temperature. Mm. You don't do much with that information. Yeah. So there were several, several things. I mean, the one, I mean, I don't know what your questions are, Martin, but for me, some of the really, one of the really interesting bits was to do with short procedures. <laughs> right. And what that is, um, now this was really interesting because there's nice guidelines. We're really fortunate to have nice guidelines. So, you know, it's a great um, starting, well, to say starting point, it's supposed to be a guideline, but, you know, we're fortunate to have nice guidelines. And the nice guidelines say that for patient warming should happen for patients who are having anesthesia for more than 30 minutes. Okay. Now, when we spoke to the the anaesthetist, the, well, not so much the anaesthetist, but certainly the staff who work in the operating theatre, whether they've misinterpreted or I'm not sure, but what they said was, I mean, a lot of them all said, oh, yeah, if the operation is less than 30 minutes, we don't put a warming blanket on the patient. And they've got like a list of things. So they said that type of operation, no, that's a short operation. So we don't we don't give them a warming blanket for that. And they had a whole list. In, it's not written. It is not written down anywhere. It's just this shared common knowledge that the staff have mm-hmm. about what's a short operation, what's a long operation. So they had these lists in their heads of short operations. Now, where presumably they were notionally saying this is less than 30 minutes. But what they were focusing on was the time of the surgery. Now, the NICE guidelines say it's the time of the anaesthetic because often your patients are in the anaesthetic room for a bit longer. And I don't think I've got this data in the actual article that we published, but when we looked at the data for the length of time that the patients were in the anaesthetic rooms for, it was phenomenally, it's a long, long time. Now, whether they're just hanging about in there waiting for the next, you know, they've been sent for too early, or if they're under anaesthesia all that time, it looked like they were under anaesthetic for that time. Mm. So actually, the patients are under anaesthetic for a long time. In fact, when we looked at the data, we looked at these short operations and we worked out the average duration of a short, you know, these, you know, what the nurses said oh, were yeah, short, short operations. And it was just over an hour. So right. it was supposed to be less than half an hour. So there was lots of patients who the host- the theatre staff said, don't give them a warming blanket because it's only a short operation. It's going to be less than 30 minutes. They're not going to get cold. And actually a substantial number of those patients having these alleged short operations we're hypothermic. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's actually the anaesthetic that makes you cold, isn't it? And then you yeah. get given the anaesthetic, and then you get positioned, then you get taken into the theatre itself, the operating room itself, and then you get repositioned, and then they start <laughs> draping up, and then they start yeah. the skin prep, and eventually the surgeon turns up. <laughs> uh, hopefully oh, he would have been there for the pre-op checklist. But, uh, but then the, you get knife to skin, and you're right, that could be – anything up to an hour yeah. after the actually you you were put under the anesthetic so that, yeah, that's an interesting absolutely. point oh, for international listeners by the way i should we should stress that nice is the uh, uk's national institute for clinical excellence who produce evidence-based guidelines and judy will know all about that because she sat on them sat on the guideline working groups 
presumably for lots of sins in a previous life she got stuck with that but <laughs> but they produce evidence-based guidelines that hospitals in the UK are meant to adhere to and are supposed to be measured on their quality of care by their adherence to these standards. Yeah so and I think that's really interesting because we were getting down to what's the root of some of these problems and if I had come along with my solution already prepared, you know, this is what we're going to implement, this is the care bundle. Actually, if I had just addressed that one thing, yeah. um, then I could have done a whole world of good by, you know, uh, by, by focusing on that. I think it's um, the Pareto, the Pareto principle is like a 20-80 and it's mm. like 20% causes 80% of your problems. So yeah. if I'd maybe just focused on that, I could have made a big difference without having to go out and do anything, you know, quite major. Well, the thing is, our bundle didn't work because people didn't implement it. And we had nine things in our bundle. So to actually do a local assessment of how you implement nine aspects of a bundle, that's a big piece of work, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe the bundle was too big because I, I think there has there's been other work that says that the chances of the bundle succeeding is almost inversely proportional to the number of items within the bundle. So maybe we went a bit big. But we, to be honest, what we did look at, I think, was the um, Saving Lives bundle that was around at the time, the nine points on that one. So Yeah, we did. We, we used that as a basis. And what I remember, um, I mean, that was a while ago now, Martin. I'm trying to remember when how many years ago we did that study. Um, but I remember at the time speaking to the person who was collecting the data. And what was really interesting, it's about it's about driving down and really finding out what the problems were. Because mm. at the time, we were being um, assessed, if that's the right word, by something called sequin. Now, if you've got international listeners, I'm trying to remember what that stands for. So it's Quality Care Commissioning. Um, can you remember, Martin? I can't remember what the algorithm stands for, but I do know you got payment for for achieving certain quality, um, minimum quality standards, and you got yeah, an extra I, payment for your organisation because you achieved that yeah. adhere to those standards. I'm not sure, Martin, if it was if that was the one way of looking at it, and it was more that rather than it being a payment, it was they actually withheld payment. <laughs> so yeah, I think yeah. Be promised oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was the Commission for Quality and Innovation. Money. Yeah, commissioning, yeah. Uh, commissioning for quality and innovation. That's what it was. Yeah. Oh, they well did. done, you. Yeah, it, yeah. It was it <laughs> and, was two and two and a half percent of the total contract value is is what it. Th- what yeah. It was. yeah. And what was interesting was we had a, they were called sequin targets, so you had to mm. show compliance with certain activities. And at the time, we had a sequin target which was warming blankets were um, given to every single patient, and I think this again was colorectal surgery. So this was intra-op. So we had a sequin target that every single patient would get this warming blanket applied during surgery. So that was happening at the same time as our study. And obviously we have to, the hospital had to collect data to show to the sequin to prove that they've done this. So they had um, regularly monthly data collections where, you know, at the end of each operation, they had to tick a box and that was collated at the end of each month. So they were able to show 100% compliance. Every single patient has got a warming oh, yeah. blanket applied. Yeah. <laughs> so we thought, well, this is, you know, this is very strange. So it did look like patients were getting the bundle. But then when we spoke to our researcher, who again was going in and doing observations and speaking to people, I think you've got to go and observe and see what's really happening, you know. No, you do. And, um, <laughs> and he's, he said... Um, because he wasn't a nurse and he said yeah they get 100% compliance on those warming blankets he said but I have noticed that 
they are put on, they are on top of the patient and they are plugged in, but they're not switched on. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's, so, that certainly saves some electricity, so that's possibly yeah, good for the planet so, in that aspect. So, te- so technically they were on the patient. And then there was another time, and then he then he went on and he said, he said, and also he said, in terms of how they're put on the patient, he said, uh, they're, you know, the patient's got a gown on, and then these blankets are on top of that. And uh, does that still count? And I remember saying, well, I'm not quite sure, because, you know, the, these warm blankets, the ones at the time, you know, they've got the holes in them. It's like a duvet yep. with lots of holes in it, and it's got the air coming that circulates. Yep. So we got in touch with the company who made them, and we said, in terms of, having you know the effectiveness of these warming blankets is it okay do they still work if they're on top of the patient's gown and they said no (laughs) (laughs) they said they have to be you know next to the patient's skin he said you might get some you know some effect if it's got a barrier in between but really it's next to the patient's skin so although they, they were on technically on top of the patient they not, weren't always switched on. And what was interesting was we said, why are they not switched on? And they said, oh, the surgeons find them a bit noisy. Excellent. <laughs> or they find, you know, they're concerned about that circulating air that is disturbing the, you know, the laminar flow or something. So yeah. it was just, I love when you drill down and really find out what the problems are. You go and observe things, you go and speak to people. We'd have mm. never found that out if we, you know, if we'd, we, you know, if we just looked at the audit data. Yeah, I mean, what did the um, qualitative interviews tell you then when, when you actually got chatting to staff? You know, was there confusion about whose job it was or, you know, to do things or, or this isn't within my area? Yeah, or or even, even like, well, it won't make a difference anyway type of attitudes? Was there some of that? Oh, there was. There was. I think there was a lot of confusion about whose responsibility it was. And a lot of people just deferred to the surgeon and said it's his responsibility. How can it be, though? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, and, and some of our interventions and our parts of our bundle in theatre are the job of many different people. And yet the only person who actually gets an infection rate is the surgeon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet it's the ODP who might be responsible for, you know, perioperative warming or, you know, and, and there's so many different people who might be responsible for different aspects. And, and in fact, you've completely widened out with this paper, making me think about, well, what about the theatre porter? Does he realise that if he dawdles on his way down the corridor, the patient's going to cool down? Or if he's hanging around in certain areas, does he get, he's got a role in keeping the patient warm enough so that they have a reduced risk of yeah. infection. I used to work in a hospital, Martin, and um, the theatre department was in a different block for a different building from the wards. So when the porter transported the patient from the ward to the theatres, he was going outside. So he would have the patient on a trolley and he'd put a big duvet on top and he would stand at the head end and, and push the patient on the trolley. And if it was raining, he would hold the trolley, but he'd also at the same time hold an umbrella over the patient's head. <laughs> And push them to theatre. Yeah, you know. Well, I'm afraid I, in a previous life, I worked at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital way before its current guys, and they used to turn up with a little milk float type thing and attach it to the bed and tow them out through the grounds to get to theatre. Which during winter they'd have a plastic cover on them to keep the snow off them on the way to theatre. So I can't imagine they were particularly warm by the time they got there either. Well, that was in the days before for warming or, or anything really so yeah yeah i mean what how do you think people have changed their attitudes because you've seen the way through the pathway how did the, how did they actually pan out at the end of it then because you've got you, you know you've identified all these different areas where things can fall down yeah 
So what's the next step? How, how do you get this engagement? The problem with this particular study was we kind of ended after this. We did some feedback, but we didn't really go and follow. I think we moved, we'd moved on to other things and then there was COVID and everything. So we didn't really follow up with this. But um, Wrong answer. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but part of the other problem with this was the guidelines around, you know, for anaesthetics, it says that if a patient comes into the anaesthetic room, you're supposed to take their temperature before induction. That hardly ever happened. Mm. And then if your patient is cold, you have to start pre-op warming, wait until they're warm and then do the surgery. Of course, that never happens. Could, could you imagine, imagine that happening? Me- yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on planet Earth, that is never going to happen, is it? And that's exactly. the issue, isn't it? And also you have to fill in a critical incident form. Now, oh, yeah. I have never, never seen a critical incident form filled in because a patient was cold before surgery. But these are what the guidelines saying. So it's like the guidelines, you know, you really need some real world perspectives there. Um, yeah, that's that's my issue with a lot of guidelines. They're written by people who look at things in a perfect world. And as Heather Loveday would say, work is imagined. But what yeah. really happens is what Eric Holdenagel would say is work is done. And, you know, the people who write the guideline don't do what you've done, which is actually look at a process and do some sort of local audit. And I, I thought it was nice in what in your um, introduction, you referred to a paper that looked at some bundle implementation. And I think it was less than 10% had done a local yeah. needs assessment. Therefore, how can we have any idea whether what we're suggesting will work in our organisation without really understanding the whole process and somebody's taking a, an overview of the whole thing? It does make life yeah. tricky, doesn't it? I know. So this was just our first start before we went on and did something. But then I think COVID happened and all sorts of other things. So we didn't, yeah. we weren't able to carry on. But uh, but yeah, absolutely, we need to get back to it. Uh-huh. Mm. I mean, yeah. it, it, I, I I like the duration. You know, the people people don't really get that because I've never really seen that published. To be honest, so you did mention it very briefly in the paper, the duration of of this. But maybe yeah. that's that's a, that's you know, there's more to be had out of this one. I think to actually highlight that to people. It'd be good to drill down and see why is it that that it was taking so long. You know, was it genuine? Was it could could this have been avoided or could it not have been avoided? It might have been that it had to take fifteen hours, but I, you know, I can't believe it. I think my feeling is there's always a lot of waiting. People get them down because they don't want to keep somebody else waiting, and they we're generally yeah, talking about the bloke with the knife. He doesn't want to be <laughs> well, kept waiting. Uh-huh. Well, it's because you want to have that flexibility in the operating theatre and something goes mm. wrong and we need to bring somebody forward. But then obviously the more time patients are spending in hospital, they're getting colder, they're getting fasted for longer. And mm. both of these things affect your wound healing negatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so it's, a, it's a balance. Yeah, I mean, it, it is difficult, isn't it? Because you can think this case is going to take an hour, let's get the patient down early. And then the case takes two hours. So mm-hmm. then you've had that patient waiting around in possibly a suboptimal area, often on their own, you know, just know. sitting in the anaesthetic room, somebody popping in and out. Is anybody checking their temperature and seeing what it's like? Because, you know, the, the anaesthetic rooms are not famous for being saunas, as far as I can recall, no. to be absolutely honest. No, they're not cosy. <laughs> no. you know, and if there's somebody already in the anaesthetic room, you're in the theatre corridor then, often waiting, mm-hmm. or in a theatre holding area, which, may, again, may not be that warm and may not be managed by somebody whose job it is to actually keep you warm during that time. Yeah. Um, so, And obviously there's costs associated with this, you know, Oh, yeah. I was speaking to a nurse this morning. I was doing some interviews for for a different study. And um, she was talking about patients who'd been identified with high risk for developing um, surgical site infections. 
And so she's a surgical care practitioner. So she does some operating on patients. And she was saying, um, so if patients identified as high risk, she says she then wants to give them, you know, maybe a, a negative pressure dressing or some antibiotics into the wound. You know, there's additional stuff that she wants to do. And she says, when she gets to the end of the case, she says, oh, can I have? And it's the more expensive stuff. She says that, the, you know, the staff look at her like that's extra money, you know, as if it's coming out of our budget. That's extra mm. money. But, you know, you're saving the dividends, you know, you're saving the money further down the line when your patient hasn't got an infection. So it's about balancing all those costs, because really the admissions lounge should be lovely and warm, a lovely, warm, <laughs> you know, keeping should, our yeah. patients you know, in optimal condition. Um, yeah. And they're not always. You know. No, no. It's, it's really been fascinating. I really love this approach. You know, they're, they're drilling down into it to see where the opportunities are and what the pitfalls are going to be. And so, because you know, then you at least have some chance of overcoming barriers before you actually put something into place and it falls flat on its face. And then everybody gets disillusioned with it because it didn't work. It didn't work. I know. And I think there's lots of studies out there that says this didn't work or this intervention didn't work. But actually, no, the intervention was absolutely fine. Your implementation was really poor. And certainly now for a lot of research studies, if you want to get funding, you know, some um, national body funding to do things, they're much more switched on. And they're now saying, what's your implementation strategy? Have you got an implementation specialist on board to make sure that this is being implemented properly? Yeah. yeah. I can remember reading a paper by Eitan and colleagues, systematic review of central line associated bloodstream infection reduction bundles. Do they work or not? And, there's, and they had 93 studies to look at. So 93 RCTs to do a uh-huh. meta-analysis on. And the, and the consensus was, yes, they did work. But they also looked at compliance and compliance was actually only reported in 25% of the studies. And even then, it was only compliance after, not before. So you didn't know if there was a change. But in the people that did report compliance, it was suboptimal in all of them. So despite the fact that we have no evidence that anybody really implemented the bundle well, it did seem to work, which yeah. is nuts, yes. isn't it, really? It's, it's um, absolutely and, nuts. Yeah. And that's what we'd found in that study that we did ages ago, looking at the colorectal mm. care bundle, was because yeah. we did that systematic review and again, that was a care bundle to prevent wound infections in colorectal patients. And again, all these bundles implemented, but there was no data on did they actually implement I the know. bundle properly? I, I think we found there was one of them that had a 2% compliance with a bundle. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got two in a hundred chance of actually getting optimal yeah, care. Right. And everybody right, else gets suboptimal was... care. And yeah, and maybe we right. need to start talking about missed care. I mean, I'd, I had a chat with Heather Loveday earlier on this year. Well, actually, it was last year. And it's not like things not happening. It's it's actually missed care. So, And, and that's yeah. the way to put it. And that's a sort of a non-threatening way of putting it. You know, we missed four out of the five things we could have done to reduce yeah. this person's risk of infection. How would you feel if that was you? Maybe that's a way we've got to start putting yeah, it to people. absolutely. Because I hate the word and, compliance, I have to say, because it infers subservience. Okay, you're but, being told yeah, what you're doing, yeah, you know? Yeah. Adherence I, I, there. Adherence yeah. maybe, or, the, you know, uh, maybe there's other words oh. for it. But it's 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 just opportunities missed and yeah. opportunities to do better, I think, is a, is a oh. way we've got to throw and think about it. And we've got so many staff now who are getting involved in quality improvement projects um, and there, there, you know, there has been sometimes a bit of pressure for people to get involved in research studies and to publish and all that. But actually, you know, if you can do a, a really proper thorough audit 
gosh, you get some really good findings from that, you mm. know, really, mm. really informative, good stuff. So yeah. you don't have to do the high-flying fancy stuff. Just, you know, give us a really good audit and let's find uh, out what's going on. Have a on. really good dig deep. Well, it's been mm. fascinating. I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. And I, you know, I, I, when I read it, I thought, oh, this is such a nice approach, you know, the three-pronged approach. You've got the qualitative work. You've actually followed three, four, four patients to see exactly what happens, and that's been an eye-opener. And then you've actually looked at the data, and that also has been eye-opening as well. So there's so many aspects of the paper that I really liked. Because it's open access, everybody can read it, uh, and I hope people will download it. I'll put a link in the podcast um, uh, description underneath for people to have a look at, plus maybe I'll have one from, to our uh, earlier work so that you can see how badly we failed all those years ago <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's been lovely yeah, talking martin, to you judith martin is an absolute pleasure as it always is thank you i hope you've all enjoyed listening to this as well and I look forward to speaking to you again on a future edition of infection control matters bye-bye